Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Greenleft Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning. You are listening to Green Left Weekly Radio um, with Jacob and Zane um, in the studio. It's just hit 7 a.m., so, um, yeah, it's going to be quite a big um, week in politics, but I guess before we start talking about that, um, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the wandering land of the Kulin Nation. Um, we would like to pay our respect um, to Elders past and present, um, and that this always was um, and always will be Aboriginal land, and that sovereignty was never ceded. Word. All right, so um, I guess the um, what we have kind of lined up for the program, we're going to be talking um, to Maz, um, who I think actually she has been a, a, a presenter on FreeCR before. Um, she's um, going to be talking to us about um, the on the campaign that's just getting started up to org- um, around organising a mass blockade against the IMARC convention that's happening at, towards the end of October. And then... Um, What's IMARC? IMARC is the International Mining and Resources sort of convention. Basically, all the big mining capitalists and companies are all having their big annual meeting um, during the weekday where um, no one is, um, where no ordinary person will be going to because it's, they'll be working. And um, yeah, so that's, that's the context of the means of the ideas to organise this mass blockade. But I'm sure we'll hear more from Maz when we speak to her. Um, and then we'll be speaking to um, Tom Tanuki from Yelling at Racist Dogs. Um, I mean, especially in the context of a lot of these sort of terrible shootings that have happened in the United States in the past week, um, we're going to have a bit of a discussion with him about, you know, the rise of the far right, you know, the question of media. This is something that Tom Tanuki has done a lot of work on and also will be an opportunity, I guess, to promote the upcoming campaign and against racism and fascism, um, CAF, um, day summer school or day... Day conference. Day think, conference yeah. or something, yeah. Well, but it's described as, which is happening um, tomorrow at the um, Melbourne, Trains, Melbourne Trades Hall and Tom Turkey is going to be a speaker at it. All right, so, um, yeah, Zane, is there any particular headline news you want to share or...? Uh, well, first of all, I'll just give a plug to that thing that's happening at CAF tomorrow. I'm in a band uh, with uh, Ed from CAF, who plays... He's actually a very good sax player, apart from also being a very good anti-fascist organiser. And we're in a band, and we're playing a set at the end of the thing 
at Trades Hall tomorrow, probably at about 7.30. So, yeah, if you want to come along to that uh, calf, that day conference, Fight the Right, um, yeah, there'll be some good radical music at the end. And we just had band practice last night. It's sounding very good. So, uh, yeah, do get along. And in terms of current news, I guess there was two things. Hong Kong and also ICE deporting people willy-nilly. I've been watching the new series of uh, Orange is the New Black, and it's really cool the sort of focus that they've got on uh, ICE and uh, the rounding up of uh, immigrants that's happening in the USA at the moment. Uh, It's obviously really disturbing and distressing stuff. Uh, And I've read a story this morning from a page called Close the Concentration Camps, and that was about a a man who spent his first six months of his life in Greece. Technically, he was an Iraqi citizen, uh, but he's, you know, from the age of six months, he spent his whole life in the USA. Uh, he had diabetes. Uh, he was living with, I think, um, schizophrenia, and ICE picked him up, deported him to Iraq, a country he's never been to in his life, Hmm. doesn't speak Arabic. And, yeah, he sent a couple of videos from uh, on the streets in Baghdad and eventually died from his diabetes. And Hmm. it's just disgusting the way that people are being deported left, right and centre to countries they've literally never been to or or might have spent a few months or a year there when they're a little baby. Yeah, it's a, it's just this, um, and there's, and it's not, not too dissimilar to what, um, what Australia is currently doing with offshore detention and, um, the de- deportation of refugees. Yeah, refouling refugees. Yeah, uh, so, yeah, that's, yeah, that's just disgusting to watch that, um, train wreck, uh, that, that evil particular train wreck unfolding. Uh, the other thing is the Hong Kong uh, democracy yeah, starting protests. To, yeah, it's starting to um, sort of escalate into sort of massive sort of general um, general strikes and mobilisations, hmm. um, which I think yeah, it's, it's I think it's a it's an interesting movement um, because I think it's because one of the I think I've have said this in the program before because one of the things about Hong Kong is it's kind of like in this sort of as a state it's sort of in this sort of intermediate kind of stage because previously it was a British colony and then the British left and then China took it um took took back control in fury um because it was previously territory of China um but then it, they never really took it fully because in a sense Hong Kong is in itself an independent kind of state that is quite almost separate from China and in fact one of the things that's kind of I guess driving this movement is the fact that Hong Kong isn't necessarily completely bound by you know what the Chi- the Chinese Communist Party government etc and all the same kind of laws and I think part of the the protests and what's kind of surging protests is the fact that China is attempting to sort of integrate Hong Kong further into 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 China. So which is in a sense that means Hong Kong would have to follow the same laws, be bound by the the same government, etc. So I think that that's I think that's what's really I guess fueling the fueling fueling the protests and because it, in a sense that it is a movement of a certain kind of sovereignty or self-determination in 
in the current context of Hong Kong being in this sort of weird sort of intermediate kind of stage. And in fact, possibly the politi- what they're looking to become is potentially become a, a similar kind of state to say Singapore, because Hong Kong and Singapore are both, you know, they're both trading, they're both very similar countries in a sense that they're like a, a, a base for like, you know, trade and commerce, etc. And there's not necessarily much natural resources and they're both sort of small islands kind of thing. Hmm. But I think it's definitely the exciting. I think the protests in a sense that, you know, it's following on from the umbrella movement that happened years before and they sort of right, fight for kind of democracy and sort of, you know, self-determination. Hmm. Yeah, you look at something like the rise of um, uh, Hugo Chavez and the movement for a Fifth Republic, which later became the PSUV in Venezuela, and that that sort of, I guess, movement for change there was built off the Caracazo riots, uh, and you know, evidently, what's happening in Hong Kong is much bigger. In, in, in scale and endurance than the Caracazo riots that happened in Venezuela in 1989. So I guess it's, um, yeah, you can have powerful and, and long-lasting political change emerging from um, huge sustained mass mobilizations like this where the working class begins to feel its power and and Mm. what it's capable of. Mm. Yeah, which is um, very similar to, I guess, what's also happening in Sudan right now, although I think in Sudan things have sort of quietened down because one of the more recent developments that happened a number of weeks ago has um, that, you know, the the protests in Sudan have, I think in a sense, entered in a bit of a power-sharing kind of agreement with um, the military um, because previously the main kind of issue was the fact that the military were in control, hence the protests, and so they're coming. It is actually a kind of like, I guess, a compromise mm. kind of solution, but of course I think there might be still further developments springing out of that, Yeah, right. but that have yet to be kind of seen. Yeah, and I mean, it's, I guess it's understandable that there was some sort of compromise arrived at when, when you look at how bloody the repression was by the Sudanese military. Hmm. Yeah, so that's interesting, and I've seen some annoying people on Facebook saying, oh, the Hong Kong protests are all the CIA front. What garbage, seriously, what a load of crap. Like, hmm. you know, are the Hong Kong protesters, you know, communists or, or socialist in their outlook? Are they trying to abolish capitalism? No, they're obviously, they're protesting for some sort of, um, you know, liberal capitalist democracy Hmm. but that represents a step forward against the authoritarian quote-unquote communist type of government that there is on the chinese mainland and it's a funny kind of communism where there's a whole bunch of billionaires in in china super rich people and there's you know it's it's china's capitalist but without the democratic elections that are uh, that we take for granted in a lot of capitalist, um, you know, sort of bourgeois democracies. So it's not surprising that uh, I think uh, the protests in Hong Kong are liberal in their outlook, mm. uh, but there, there's still something that should be supported by... Yeah. Well, lefties. I think, I mean, um, just being noticing, just following, because I follow some of the Asia-Pacific left, and I think um, there was actually recently 
the Hong Kong, um, the Hong Kong protests, um, do generally, uh, appear to be supported by most of the sort of active kind of radical kind of left, um, who come from all sorts of political backgrounds, which is, I mean, because the most dominant political background in that Asian region is Maoist, um, mm-hmm. and most Maoist, um, or movements have actually declared China, um, since 1980, after the post-cultural revolution, past the um, transformation of capitalism, um, as revisionist, um, and also other parties have evolved in their own directions away from kind of Maoism, similar to how left-wing parties in the US or in, um, the Western world have kind of evolved beyond sort of the Schrotskyism kind of movement. Hmm. Um, and yeah, generally most of these, most of the sort of political organisations and active ones, um, from, you know, from Indonesia, the Philippines and, um, Malaysia are generally in support of, um, the Hong Kong protests, hmm. um, which I think, you know, would put, you know, clearly China is not, you know, the Chinese Communist Party is not necessarily in solidarity with all these sort of radical kind of left organizations who are active on the ground in, in the Asian region right now. <laughs> mm. If that, if that's clearly the case. Yeah. Because, Which is so ironic because you've got sort of. Which is a very different situation from, for when, from when China was actually in a sense, you know. A communist state under, under Mao, which of course we have lots of criticisms of and had lots of problems, but it was actually in a sense, Mao, um, China did actually play the role of actually supporting, even though it was complicated, the kind of revolutionary movements that popped up in, in Vietnam and, um, and so on and other, and even in Malaysia. <laughs> really? I'm pretty sure that the, uh, I'm pretty sure China was not supportive of, uh, of the Viet Cong, which is why the Viet Cong had to get a bunch of stuff from, from the USSR. Oh, well, no, um, well, my history I've been reading lately because I've been studying this is, mm-hmm. um, Ho Shou Min played both. He tried to get, get support from both. He, there were arms being provided by China and USSR simultaneously. And then the Sino-Soviet split happened and that, that complicated things oh, okay. even more. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, that's why I mean. I'm not saying that they, what, what China did back then was perfect, but they did in a sense, there was some affinity with the Vietnamese Communist Party with Mao, mm. but also they had, they were, in a sense, playing both sides. I mean, the old Trotskyist position on Vietnam was all well of just Stalinist, which I think was wrong. Um, but the um, Ho Chi Minh was, and the Communist Party there was generally tried to generally got support from both the Chinese Communist Party and um, and um, USSR at the time. And then the Sino-Soviet split happened, yeah. which yeah, then right. complicates things even more. <laughs> Interesting. I was only aware of that part, you know, post that Sino-Soviet split. Yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah, I, I, it's and apart from anything else, it's ironic that you have Western leftists saying, "Oh, we've got to support the Chinese government here against the CIA-backed troublemakers." But, but, in we're, Hong but Kong. we're sort of not living in that. We're not living the Cold War, war era. No, anymore. very much not. And yeah, it's ironic that it, there's Western leftists saying we should more or less uncritically back China on this, and then as you say, there's lefties in Hong Kong and throughout Asia who are coming from a Maoist tradition, even if they're not officially Maoist now, and they're backing the protesters in Hong Kong. Hmm. And obviously the trade union movement in Hong Kong is playing a very big role in organising these general strikes. So, hmm. yeah, anyway, it's pretty exciting and, and fascinating stuff to see. Hmm. All right, so why we'll play a quick announcement and move on to some other news stories. <laughs> oh, 
El Dorado, the story of Scudiez, is the story of a fight of a small community in northern Greece against a multinational-owned gold mine project that threatens their homes and lives. A grassroots movement is fighting against the destruction of the environment caused by the extraction methods and for democratic control of the most crucial basic resources, water, air and land. It shows Greece in the era of social and economic crisis where the rights of communities and the environment collide with big business and profit. This screening will be followed by a performance by Bandidas playing classic Rembetica songs of love and loss, pain and pleasure at Café Gummo, 7-Eleven High Street Thornbury on Saturday the 10th of August at 7.30pm. Entry will be by gold coin donation and all funds will go to 3CR. Red alert. Numbers are needed at the Japurang Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japurang country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The cops are coming with eviction orders very soon. The campaign to protect country is led by Japarang traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarang country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. All right, you are on 3CR. It's Friday Brecky, Green Left Radio, and it is 17 minutes past seven. Yeah, so the on the um, Japaron, um, just to give a bit of an update on the Japaron um, t- um, emb- um, um, country embassy, um, um, essentially what happened on the 8th of August, I mean, that announcement um, did say red alert, but that announcement was actually recorded a few weeks prior to what this more recent announcement um, states, which is essentially Daniel Andrews has issued um, issued uh, an eviction order to traditional owners in ja- um, Jabaron country, and the traditional owners of the at the Jabaron Heritage Protection, um, Protection Embassy are furious this morning, um, on which is on the 8th of August, um, have, with police issuing the embassy with an eviction notice, which basically gives the camp 14 days to vacate um, their sacred landscape to make way for the Western Highway duplication between Ararat and Buran. Buran Gol, uh, that's, that's pronouncing critically. Um, and I think, you know, th- this whole camp has actually been going on for 14 months. And one of the more... <coughs> Sorry, um, silly things about the campaign, um, not the campaign itself, but more Daniel Andrews' government, is um, the campaign has suggested an alternative route um, that doesn't impact on the sacred trees, and um, they've also recommended that safety on the road can ma- be maximised by lowering the spe- speed limit, um, and the... The Daniel Andrews government, or so-called progressive Daniel Andrews government, that's apparently pushing, you know, for treaty legislation with um, First Nations people, is completely resisting that idea of just implementing an alternative route. Um, and yeah, 
but I definitely think, you know, for anyone who's currently listening at the moment, um, it's definitely important um, if you are in a position to get down, um, to get down there and to show your solidarity uh, or alternatively donate or at least send, you know, give a call to your to Daniel Andrews government to, or your local MP about this particular issue. Mm. Tell them what a bunch of racist dogs they are. Mm. Now, I guess the other, um, the next kind of news story is just going internationally. Um, um, over the weekend, last weekend, um, and we featured a member of this organization over, um, over our program previously, the Democratic Socialist America. Um, so the Democratic Socialist America had their convention, which is sort of equivalent to, you know, a national conference, um, in, and, to give you a bit of a summary about more well, the interesting kind of aspects of the conference, um, the DSA are, you know, the biggest kind of socialist organisations, although they're not necessarily... Oh, it's a bit hard to define the type of socialist organisation they are because they're such, there's such a broad range of views in the organisation, from some that are reformist to some that are more revolutionary, some are sort of in between. Um, but over, they have over 55,000 um, 55, members, um, and out of those 55,000 members, over 1,056 um, delegates um, met in Atlanta over the weekend, which, you know, adopted, um, voted to adopt the series of resolutions um, that will continue to build a strong national organisation, carrying out an ambitious campaign in labour and community organising as well as electoral politics. And I guess a few things to summarise without going into too much detail with all the boring ones. The main kind of big motion that was sort of passed um, for the DSA is the DSA have really been the organised kind of left sort of breakthrough that is sort of reflective of, of the big surge in popularity for Bernie Sanders. Um, so they have adopted a very a quite a strong resolution that basically says they will not endorse any Democratic president candidate unless it's Bernie Sa- if Bernie Sanders doesn't get the nomination, which I think yeah, is right. a pretty strong statement mm. um, and a good sort of step in the vision. I mean, there's a debate in the left currently going on on whether you should endorse Bernie Sanders at all or endorse the Greens. And then some of the some of the so hang on hang on. Does that mean by implication that they would maybe endorse the Greens if Sanders is not the Democrat? Uh, Apparently that would be, according to some DSA members I've spoken to, that would be very unlikely. Yeah, okay. Um, So, and then... um, the other, I guess, the big political divide at the conference has been this whole issue of a decentralised and centralised organisation. Um, but there were, but DSA did adopt a number of resolutions, you know, prioritising a number of campaigns such as anti-fascism work, uh, commitment to the Medicare for All campaign that we were previously running, um, okay, um, campaign for um, around immigrant rights, and then also, you know, um, a more commitment to sort of deepening their work in the, in the trade union movement. And I guess. The criticism that they've sort of been receiving the most has been um, that the DSA is still very weak on the question of foreign policy. Mm. Um, and, I mean, apart, there were some policies sort of passed through that would have put them in, in the right direction. In fact, I think there might have been some motion put forward about... Um, about the endorsement of DSA candidates on the basis of particular positions on imperialism, but I, I have to look at that a bit more closely. Um, but I also think it's a, it's actually a general weakness in the left in the United States to not be that strong on, on questions of US imperialism. I mean, because one of the big 
gaps for the left is the US left has always been incredibly hostile to all the left wing kind of uprisings in Latin America, mm. um, especially the amount, the so little support that the US left actually gives to say Cuba. Mm. Um, that has been always kind of been their weaknesses. Um, so it's sort of like DSA is sort of just a bit below par what the rest of the other existing left have already p- positions. And, um, I think the other thing that was sort of noted about the convention is it sort of, there really wasn't really much deep, broader political discussion that sort of linked to any sort of Marxist theory, et cetera. Um, but overall, the impression of this, of this ride down the bots, who was a delegate at the conference, you know, he rec, he believes that, you know, this, um, this convention demonstrates that the DSA is still one of the most important left wing forces, um, in the United States right now. Um, and, you know, it's really the main game in town for what well, he thinks the main sort of thing in town for, you know, people on the left to sort of engage with in some way if you're in the mm. United States. And I think their growth is, I think, exciting because, you know, there is, in a sense, there's no equivalent party in, say, Australia to the DSA, like a party that is drawing in wild swipes of youth or... Um, mm. From, from, from different political tendencies into one political organization. So I think it's, it's still, yeah. And what's the latest with their membership numbers? Cause we had, uh, Isaac Silva, who's from Chicago and he's a DSA activist come and visit for the, um, Socialist Alliance conference at the start of the year. And he was saying at that time that the membership was about 60,000 people, but was still sort of just continually growing. Yeah, well, this article said here that that the numbers were in the fifty-five thousand to um, to sixty thousand range. Yeah, right. I mean, the it's a bit unclear how active all the branches are because apparently it's reported here in the article that there are some chapters or branches that didn't actually participate in the delegate elections or had very low participation rate, um, and probably had a participation of like say ten to twenty percent of a branch might have voted. To Mm-hmm. Voted for delegates, um, to the DSA convention. And, yeah, so. And this discussion that they had about centralization versus decentralization, can you talk a little bit more about Okay, so that? the centralization, um, argument is that there are people that want the DSA to be a tighter organization in terms of, um, in terms of the, the, in terms of giving more power to a, na- to a national organization to kind of set directions. So, for example, I mean, we're both part of Socialist Alliance, I guess, but um, a Socialist Alliance and Social Alternative would be an example of a centralised organisation in a sense that when a convention happens, it sets broad kind of political directions and every branch is expected to carry out those political directions and those political tasks. So that's probably what that's along the type of politics that the centralised kind of tendency is kind of pushing for. They want the DSA to be a, a coherent national organisation that sets the directions for all the chapters because, you know, the argument is that, you know, a united kind of organisation um, can be more effective. Mm. But then the more, de- um, the sort of, um, the decentralised argument is not arguing completely against any form of centralization, but they want um, chapters to be more empowered to sort of take their own kind of initiatives. Um, and probably a, a practical example of that would be, you know, there could be a particular 
local camp, um, uh, the decentralized group is possibly more interested in building more local community links in their community as a way to build the influence of DSA, mm. um, whereas uh, probably more centralized um, one would push for the DS, um, for a DSA chapter to be play a role in more sort of national kind of campaigns, mm. like, you know, the Medicare for All kind of campaign, that kind of thing. Yeah, right. Yeah, when, <coughs> when uh, this DSA activist Isaac was visiting from Chicago, uh, that was one of the interesting things that he talked about because he's from... Uh, He's been involved in one of these other kind of um, radical left parties before he left that group and joined um, the DSA. And he said the the DSA doesn't have these kind of um, quite um, thoroughly worked out organisational structures that a lot of the other smaller parties on the radical left have got and that the DSA were kind of finding their feet as they go and sort of organically developing party structures uh, as they made mistakes and victories, basically. So that was was a very interesting kind of process that he talked about where the DSA was going from being this cloud of lefties to developing a bit Mm. more of a party. And apparently there's sort of a percentage put um, put to... um sort of who voted for the centralisation of the party and those who voted for the motions that linked to this, and it was sort of split between 40 to 50 kind of thing. So it's a pretty even kind of healthy kind of balance, hmm. not going into one direction to do it, though I think the more people pushing for a more centralised organisation, I think, make up the majority of the National Political Committee, which possibly is reflective of um, how big the political divide at this, at this stage. Mm. And yeah, so one, one, one of the criticisms that sort of the revol- radical left had had of the convention is a lot of the convention was focused on organizational kind of questions and not necessarily political, political. questions. Um, which I think in a sense is actually understandable when you have a very new organization that really hasn't even figured out their politics. Um, especially in the context of the fact that a lot of young people who are coming to the social politics, they're very excited by the Bernie Sanders campaign, and that poses all sorts of complicated questions, especially, mm. especially if, well, what happens if Bernie Sanders does win the nomination? But then, of course, if he doesn't win the nomination, then that might push people well thinking maybe we should just give up the Democrats, maybe we have to go into another political direction. So it's all, I guess, a kind of process um, that people kind of, ha- um, that a lot of people um, that. Um, people have to go through um, before they figure out what, where to next. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. Hmm. Right, we might play a few quick announcements and then we'll go move on to some other news articles. Guatemala, I'm Black Betty, and you can join me for Black Noise Radio each Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. Join me each week as I serve you up a deadly fine offering of all things black as we explore black Australia and everything fabulous it has on the offer. We'll check out and see what's making black news locally and from right around Australia. And we'll explore all things Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and the deadly solid culture and people with a look at community news, views, music, culture and the arts. Hope you can join me for Black Noise Radio featuring black news, views, current affairs, music, culture and the arts from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. That's me, Black Betty. I'll see you Thursdays at 2.
310, playing the Tote Bandroom, Sunday, September 1st. Having completed an 11-city Japanese tour, they now launch their Japanese-released album along with US Split Vinyl. Very special guests are Japanese label mates 20 Gilders, featuring Mitsuru Tabata of Acid Mother's Temple. Light Magnetic, the new band with members from The Scientists and Paradise Motel, plus competition team. For a band, The Tote, Sunday, September 1st, tickets $10 pre-sale from thetotehotel.oztix.com.au. Kazumuin Records is a 3CR supporter. Hey, right, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. It is 7.31 um, a.m. And um, get some next, um, this is just reading to some articles from Green Left Weekly. Um, and this is um, kind of like the latest um, in just a bit of an article about what's happening in the Philippines. And that is um, Philippines President um, Duterte vetoed the, the Security of Kenya bill on July 26th, which seeks to regulate um, the practice of job contracting in the country. This is properly known as ENDO, which is literally end of contract or contractization. Job um, um, contracting is the practice of supplying workers to corporations through a third-party manpower agency. The agency um, um, assumes the role of an employer, um, freeing companies from legal obligations to their workers. This includes denying their workers the right to collectively bargain when they form a union. In fact, it's actually a bit of a similar example to that in Australia with, I guess, would Zane, would you find that a bit similar to labour hire companies or... But different. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a there's a higher degree of contractualization in in uh, the Philippines, and that uh, seems to be a continuation of that trend. Yeah, and one of Duterte's um, campaign promises in the 2016 election was to end um, contract. Um, oh, well, I guess just to explain the, the scheme, um, the scheme, unjust scheme results in precarious employment leading to short-term jobs, termination without cause and union busting, which is what happens when a company ends its contract um, with a labour hire agency. And one of Duterte's promises in the 2016 election was to end contractualization, which, you know, <laughs> this was something that made him popular with a certain section of workers in the Philippines. And... Um, in a, in, a, in a sense, um, some other things about this is, you know, the Socialist Labour Centre, Solidarity of Filipino Workers, opposed the bill for its expressed legislation of third-party job contractors, which the existing Labour Code is silent on. Several other Labour, labour organisations followed suit and opposed the bill. And a silent provision of the Security of Tenure Bill, which affirms a number of existing um, Labour Code regulations, is the prohibit Sorry, prohibition. Prohibitions of contracting out jobs that are directly related to the business of the employee, whilst allowing contracting on non-directly related jobs. In vetoing the bill, Duterte said businesses should be allowed to determine whether they could outsource certain activities or not, especially when job contracting result in economy and affect efficiently in their operations with no determinant to their workers, regardless of whether this is directly related to their business. Our goal has always been to target the abuse while leaving businesses free to engage in these those practices. And, of course, um, in a recent briefing, um, Labor Secretary Silvestre Bello Free said Duterte had instructed him to submit a new version of the Security of Tenure Bill that would serve the purposes of workers and business people. And, you know, the kind of response was really, in effect, Duterte wants zero regulation of job conking. And, and in... 
and I guess in the context of all these kind of um, thing developments is there has been, you know, protests and strikes organised due um, in response with it, or due to the union busting resulting from contracts like action. Actually, mm. Yeah, I was in the Philippines in 2011 uh, when the Pelea, the airline workers' uh, strike was happening and that was a, a union busting uh, move. There's this billionaire, Lucia Tan, who owns Philippine Airlines as well as some tobacco and alcohol interests and... Uh, a whole bunch of the Philippine Airlines um, workforce were just summarily sacked and then offered their jobs back on contracts uh, at a more than 50% pay cut. And until then, that had been one of the 0.5% of the Philippine workforce that were on union agreements. So I guess the important thing to be aware of when looking at this contractualization bill in the Philippines is that there's such a low base of union density in the Philippines and they're sort of coming out of that that they had the Marcos dictatorship and uh, then there's been this kind of the union movement is, is kind of coming from a low base of trying to build up the union movement in a context where there had been a military dictatorship for uh, many years and They've only made a certain amount of headway and, yeah, something that, that allows further contractualization when the workforce has got such low union density in the Philippines is just not cool at all. Yeah. Now, I just want to move on to another article just related to Palestine and then I just want to cover this headline news um, related to um, New South Wales. Um, but this is just about um, um, the computer company HP um, and how, you know, this is a... This is in the latest Green Left Weekly about how you um, shouldn't buy any HP products because in addition to HP um, being bloated with bloatware <laughs> as one of the reasons why you shouldn't buy HP computers, they also um, they also um, play a, hu- a, a large role in Israel's grave violations of Palestinian rights and its system of military occupation, racial segregation and oppression. And, you know, just as going, um, as it's written here, you know, many companies profited from South Africans' apartheid regime. Um, HP is today profiting from, um, from Israel's, um, apartheid policies towards Palestinians. It supplies, um, Israel with technology, equipment and information that is used in, in its ongoing violations of Palestinians' rights. And of course, July, um, you know, um, marked a year since Israel marked a Jewish national nation-state law giving constitutional status to its apartheid policies towards Palestinian citizens of Israel. Internationally, solidarity activists marked the occasion by stepping up their struggle against Israel's occupation and colonisation against Palestinians and against complicit corporations such as HP. And... Um, Today, um, BDS Australia has launched a pledge to not buy HP products and to step up information outside um, retailers when where HP products are sold. We have written to the CEO of Officeworks and JB Hi-Fi, letting them know that we are organising local actions uh, outside the store. So, you know, um, the campaign is, in a sense, urging people not to buy HP laptops, scanners, printers or ink cartridges and, you know, um, wanting to know, um, wanting to let Officeworks and JB Hi4Works know they're not the target of action. Rather, we would like um, them to become well informed and join our campaign. And 
just to give a bit of a brief example for kind of what HP does is, you know, um, HP provides the exclusive uh, uh, Ethereum servers for the Aviv system of Israel's population and immigration authority. This system is the backbone of the apartheid regime that racially discriminates against Palestinians and other new non-Jewish citizens of Israel. The apartheid system is at its worst when the basic rights of Palestinian residents of um of occupied um, Palestinian East Jerusalem can be revoked arbitrary. Um, HP provides computer hardware to the Israeli army that maintains the illegal occupation of Gaza and the West Bank, including East Jerusalem. And HPE also maintains the Yisha database, which, you know, compiles information on Israeli citizens in illegal settlements in the occupied Palestinian West Bank. And I think this is really, you know, these, the basic, um, really, points to the basis of the this boycott campaign and um yeah the, there's an online pledge that can be found at bdsaustralia.net.au and for more information it says here you can contact um email you can email contact at bdsaustralia.net.au yeah nice now the next um kind of this is just a bit of a headline thing that just happened last night is um, a historic bill to, do, um, to do decriminalise abortion in New South Wales has passed the State Parliament's lower house um, following two weeks of impassioned debate, which, I mean, just shows how useless the Parliament is and how slow that is. Um, but the bill now heads um, to the New South Wales upper house for further debate. It allows for access to abortion in the first 22 weeks of pregnancy, and it also includes a provision that um, terminations beyond that must... Um, that be approved by two doctors. And um, I guess the bill was passed just before 11pm with 59 in favour and 31 against. Um, and even the Lib- um, the Premier voted for the bill, um, you know, after facing criticism for not being more vocal in her support. And, yeah, so that's... Inc- um, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty historical breakthrough and I think we'll have to see what happens next when it goes through um, through the upper house. Mm. Yeah, it's rad. It's um, yeah, it's really encouraging when um, I guess community campaigners can win a reform like that from a Tory government. Uh, so yeah, it's it's bloody awesome to see. And big ups to all those uh, yeah staunch uh, feminist campaigners across New South Wales that have all kind of fought long and hard for that victory. And I think surely. If it's been passed in the lower house and the Liberals are giving people a conscience vote, then it's likely that it's going to pass the upper house as well. Mm. The, the only issue with the upper house that could—that's where things can kind of get amended. To, legislation can kind of get amended to be made worse. <laughs> in, like yeah, but I mean, people have got to vote for those amendments. So, mm. Mm. Uh, yes, no, that's that's uh, that's great. And you wanted to play something, Zane? Uh, I'm just testing. We've had some technical issues previously here at 3CR, so I'm just trying to see if this thing can uh, work. So there's, yeah, there's no rush there. Yep. All right. So we have, or oh, we have three minutes until our interview. Won't we just play a quick few announcements, and then we'll probably just get started on. We might just get our interview started early, actually. CR, always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. 
They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone, contracted out to sham contracting arrangements. On 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au. Yeah, I spent three and a half years living on the street and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel a part of the society and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. Yeah, join me at 11 every Friday. Put some black and deadly sound. Please share community radio 855 on the AM dial. Put on the people's repeat. What a deadly product, Robbie Fort Radic Right, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. It is um, 7.55 a.m. I mean, no, 7.45 a.m. actually. <laughs> um, and um, in on the line we have Maz, who is involved in um, the campaign to um, in stop IMARC, um, of um, which is all, which is a um, a new act, um, a new coalition of um, activists have formed to organise a, a blockade of the upcoming international mining. Convention or IMARC as it's, as it's called um, at towards the end of October. So good morning, Maz. Good morning. Um, so I guess to start off, um, can you tell us a bit uh, about IMARC? Um, because even I don't have all the information off the top of my head of why what IMARC is, and of course, in a sense, a context for why we're organising a ba- mass blockade against it. Sure, yeah. Okay, so I guess IMARC stands for the International Mining and Resources Conference, um, and it's the biggest gathering of the mining industry in Australia. Um, And so all of the CEOs of the major mining companies and lots of the other smaller ones, BHP, Rio Tinto, Adani, Gold Mining, Oceana Gold, you know, on and on, come to this... um, conference and basically it's a big kind of business networking and plan conference where the industry leaders plan you know and um, how they're going to expand their um, operations um, and make links with you know, the community with you know universities with students with people who want to get in on the mining dollar you know um, and, um, yeah, and plan how to expand mining across Asia-Pacific and globally. Hmm. And um, one of the, I um, guess, can you then tell us, um, what can you tell us about the um, about the kind of blockade that's going to be kind of planned? Mm-hmm. 
Yep, sure. So I guess over the years there's been different kinds of protests and resistance to the conference um, by different groups and the the um, actions which are happening this year um, are kind of happening from a broad-based coalition. So, you know, environmental groups, you know, human rights groups, you know, animal activist groups are coming together to blockade and shut down the conference inspired by some of the actions in the early 2000s like S11 where it was a broad-based coalition that organised a huge blockade of the World and Economic Forum. Um, and so, and this is because, you know, the we're in, you know, climate emergency and in a more comfortable um, country like Australia, you know, sometimes it's not as clear to us, but First Nations people are on the front lines across the world resisting mining, resisting climate change and are the most impacted. And so this action is in solidarity with people here and internationally who are facing the brutal reality of mining, who are facing the brutal reality of climate change. And for everyone who's waking up to the reality of how serious the climate emergency is. Um, And so the blockade is going to be happening over the three days. And there's also the development of a counter-conference, which is going to be happening parallel to the IMAC conference. And the idea of this is that, you know, we're saying no to mining and we're saying yes to life. We're saying yes to climate justice. We're saying yes to a future that is livable for all. And um, so this counter-conference will involve activities, workshops, performances, film screenings that are looking at the topics of what are the alternatives to mining and not just mining, but what are the alternatives to this model of development. Um, So the blockade is not just, you know, trying to shut down this one meeting, but denounce and resist this model that IMARC represents, which is a colonial, capitalist, extractive, neoliberal model of development that, you know, these companies and these governments, you know, because this, this is all supported by the Australian government, the Victoria government, um, and they're trying to push for this continued development, this continued model. Um, so, yeah, it's resisting this model and showing that there are alternatives that are, people are already developing and that we can continue to build together. Hmm. And um, what key... You sort of alluded to this, I guess, before. What are kind of the type of issues um, that kind of flow out of this mining conference, like political issues that you think are going to kind of unite um, people, you know, to around um, supporting this sort of blockade and mobilising around it? Yeah, sure. Well, I guess, like, you know, the primary issues are have, you know, historically and today is that mining is a huge um, site of, like environmental racism, of dispossession of Indigenous people from their land. You know, you know, Indigenous people in Australia still don't have the right to veto mining. You know, and we're looking at the, you know, so there's the human and community costs, the dispossession of land. You know, the relationship between ecocide and genocide, as Robbie Thorpe, Theresa, always explains, and 
and also internationally, you know, the impact that mining has on communities. So, you know, across Latin America, you know, the the health impacts that mining has on communities, you know, they're either working in the mines or are surrounded by the mines and who is impacted most by these by these mines and the health impacts, you know, in terms of cancers, in terms of birth, birth defects, in terms of respiratory diseases, you know, is is poor people, working people, indigenous people, peasants and it's a very, it's very much, um, you know, it has massive impacts for the communities that live surrounding the mines, especially in mines that are in, across Latin America, across Africa, the Asia-Pacific. Um, so it's talking about the human cost of mining, but also about the environmental cost of mining, which, you know, is clear to anyone who's started to look into what how much, how massive the mining industry is and how, you know, the whole form of development that we've been continuing and the status quo is based on just infinite extraction of the resources of the earth, you know, with no foreseeable, you know, end in sight until when, until there's nothing left. So leaving, you know, earth that's barren, that's destroyed, that has no possibility to sustain life into the future. And, you know, and as we know, that is involved in, you know, the mining of fossil fuels, you know, the continuation of a carbon-based economy that is plunging the whole world into climate chaos. Hmm. And um, I guess one of, the, one of the other things about um, just a common... Um, about the convention as well, well, the conference, um, is, you know, looking at the list, it, uh, it appears to have, you know, all these kind of business people, um, yeah. who play really kind of, you know, basically the kind of arbiters of neoliberalism, especially yeah. in Latin America. Um, and, you know, they're the ones who, put, you know, put, implement the bureaucratically implement the trade deals that, you know, dis- um, um, disadvantaged workers and, um, and I guess, um, what kind of, um, what kind of, um, things are going to be done around this blockade to sort of draw in, say, the workers' movement around, you know, these particular issues? Because it's all, a lot of these issues would, workers' rights would actually flow out of a lot of, um, a lot out of this. Yeah, totally. I mean, last year when we were organising the, the protests and the resistance to IMARC, you know, we had some speakers from Colombia, you know, from the Sinal Trinal, which is, um, Sinatranel and uh, Centro Carbon, which is one of the unions in Colombia that organises the mining workers, um, especially in the coal mines, which um, BHP runs in in Colombia. Um, and so we we're talking about what what are what's the reality for workers in Latin America, in Asia Pacific, in Africa, who are involved in the mining industry, who are around the mining industry. Um, is, you know, is ex- extremely poor conditions. Basically people, you know, are working in the mining industry, but they, they pay for, they pay for it with the health and the health of their family. There's extremely high rates of cancer and respiratory diseases. There's been mining, you know, disasters like Samarco, you know, and, um, and, you know, it, I think it's important for us to look at the connection between 
how the money industry is damaging workers and is bad for workers and how it's bad for the environment and bad for human rights in general. You know, um, and look towards just transition. So how can we transition and continue to transition into a decarbonised economy, you know, an economy that is, you know, for all people and, you know, and change this system that promotes climate change, not just for band-aid solutions, but actually look at what are the models that we can use to provide for people's needs. Because, you know, the mining industry, as you know, has only existed, you know, for a blip of human history. And, you know, and it's not necessary to meet humans' needs. In fact, it's taking away from humans' needs because it's you know, part of a capitalist model of development that is about, you know, increasing the wealth of the rich while impoverishing the majority. Hmm. Yeah, and um, for this... Um for this blockade, how can people get involved in terms of building it um, and um, mobilising for it? Sure. Um, I guess the best way for people to get involved, you know, there's more information at the Blockade IMARC website on Facebook and you can see the upcoming organising meetings and the event, the Facebook event for Blockade IMARC itself, um, which is starting from October 29. And people can, um, there's a link there where people can put their details and, um, you know, the information that they, to be able to receive more information. Um, so that's the best way to kind of get into the loop. And there's going to be ongoing opportunities. There's going to be workshops to train people in terms of legal observing, in terms of people knowing their rights to be able to participate. There's going to be, you know, banner making workshops and other opportunities for people to get involved. Um, yeah, so for people to spread the word between their workplaces, you know, their collectives, their communities, their schools, and um, and really rally to make this, you know, a landmark event. Hmm. All right, well, thanks for that, Maz. Do you have any final comments before we finish up the interview? No, I mean, th- thank you for the interview and... Um, and you know, 3CR has been and continually is, you know, one of the strongest voices, you know, against the realities of mine, of the mining industry and, you know, and for action on climate change. And so, um, yeah, it's important, you know, that we look into, you know, media as a really important part of the movement hmm. for climate justice. Hey, thanks, Matt. Yeah, right. keep up the uh, keep up the tops work. It's it's awesome, really yeah. exciting. Thank you both. All right, cheers. Bye. Hey, uh, Matt Hart there, who's part of organising the uh, blockade IMARC, which is coming up in uh, October. So yeah, if you're not already in the loop, as Matt said, check it out the blockade IMARC website or uh, Facebook page, and you can be kept up to date about. What's uh, what's coming up to help build that blockade and and yeah mobilise your networks? Hmm. All right, we might just play a quick few announcements um, and then we'll move on to covering the activist calendar. The Renegade Pub Football League proudly presents its inaugural Pride Round, Paint in Victoria Park, Rainbow, on Saturday, August twenty fourth. 
Celebrating diversity in pub football, this free community event offers a laid-back afternoon of gender-inclusive Aussie rules football alongside DJs and a charity barbecue. Saturday, August 24th, gates open at 12.30. For more information, including pub footy's August and September fixture, visit www.rpfl.com.au. The Renegade Pub Football League is a 3CR supporter. Accent women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a in a completely violent um, cultural milieu, that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the. How the can country? people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two, where there are armies there and terrorists there, and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. Every Monday from 11am on Community Radio 3CR. Right, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, now it's time for the activist calendar. Um, so just to give you the updates on what's coming up in the activist world in terms of rallies, actions, public forums and demonstrations. Um, so this Friday there'll be the University Climate Walkout, which is a national day of action um, organised by National Union students and supported by Extinction Rebellion. Today. Um, happening today at 1pm at the State Library in the city. And on Saturday, um, there's going to be a rally, more trains on the upfield line, sick of our underserviced, overcrowded train, trains, get ready for our next action, promote more trains on the upfield line, and they'll be happening at 11am at Bain Reserve, 2 Merlin Street, Coburg North. Um, there'll be an action, Untold Story, re- um, story time, reading for refugee rights at MITRE, join teachers for refugees um, for an Untold Story, story time protest at the front of the MITRE detention centre. Teachers and educators will host true story readings about the refugees still detained in MITRE and that, and Manus and Aru and they'll be at 12 noon at MITRE 120-150 Camp Road, Broadmeadows. And then there'll be the Fight the Right, an anti-fascist day forum, which will be happening at Trades Hall I think all day or 12 to 6. What's the time for that? Uh, 11 a.m. till about 7.30-ish. Yeah, 11 a.m. to 7.30. So they'll be happening at the Shreds Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton South. Um, and then on Tuesday, August the 13th, um, there'll be a number of events. There'll be a public forum, Me Too, Stories from the Australian Movement, and they'll be happening at 3pm VU in the community, um, 138 Nicholson Street, Footscray. And then there'll be a public forum, Dismantling the Digital Dystopia. Lizzie O'Shea and John Postel in conversation about what history can tell us about both the potentials and pitfalls of digital technology in the struggle for a better world. And they'll be happening at 6pm at the New International Bookshop, um, Trades Hall 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. Um, and then there'll be from Wednesday um, the 14th of August to Sunday the August the 25th, there'll be theatre, wild cherries, trapped by circumstance and poverty, exploited and disposable. A group of forced labourers risk everything to break the bonds that imprison them. And that'll be happening at the La Mama Courthouse, 349 Drummond Street in Carton. 
On Saturday, August the 17th, um, there'll be a protest organised by Moreland XR, um, the um, ride into Dying. Um, it'll start off with, at 10am with a ride um, down Sydney Road and then go in for a, a sort of Dying slash protest at Brunswick Town Hall at 11.30am. So that's on Saturday, the August the 17th. Um, also happening on Saturday, August the 17th, will be a seminar, Latin America Fights Back. Um, they'll be happening from 10.30am to 6.30pm at the Shreds Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton South. And then there'll be a rally, um, British State Collusion, Time for the Truth. Join us for um, as we rally to call for an end to the continuous cover-up of British state murder and collusion in the north of Ireland. And they'll be happening at 2pm at the State Library. And it's organised by the James Conley Association. Um, on Tuesday, there'll be a public meeting, um, Build Communities, Not Prisons, Resisting Government Inca- um, Alternatives to Incarceration, um, with over 82,000 people on the public housing waiting list, while the Andrew ALP government plans to spend at 1.8 million on new prisons. And this features Karen Fletcher from Flat Out Inc. and Socialist Alliance, and they'll be at 6.30pm, meal from 6pm at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street in the city. Um, also happening on that time is a book launch being left wing in Australia. Um, Stuart McIntyre launches Jeff Robinson ta- Robinson's take on where things stand today in terms of left wing politics, and they'll be at 7 p.m. Tuesday, August the 20th. Um, and um, also happening on what's happening on Saturday, the 31st of August, there'll be a rally protests religious exemption bills, no right to discriminate, and they'll be happening at 1 p.m. at the State Library. And yeah, and just another, just one final plug for a thing. Highly encourage you, if you can, to go to the um, Jabberon um, Heritage Protection Embassy um, um, near Ararat. And um, yeah, that's just an ongoing kind of protest at the moment. So yeah. Word. All right, I'm going to try and play this music again. See if uh, see if the robots want to talk to us. Yeah, nah, it's a bit of a bit of an ongoing issue here at 3CR. The uh, iPod cable doesn't want to. Oh, it's not. Maybe it's not plugged. Maybe it's not plugged in properly. I've, I played. I worked it before. Yeah. Well, other iPod cables agree with my phone, but not this one. Right. Well, maybe we'll find a quick song just to play yes. until our next interview. This is Alfie by. Punuanen.
some uh, beautiful music for you there on a Friday morning. That was uh, Alfie by Punu and then. And on the phone line, we have got Tom Tanuki from Yelling at Racist Dogs, uh, who's going to be uh, talking on a panel or two, I think, tomorrow at the uh, Fight the Right uh, Anti-Fascist uh, Day Forum that's happening at Trades Hall. Welcome, Tom. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And yes, yes, everyone come along tomorrow. Yeah. Um, yeah, can you, um, I guess maybe to start off a discussion, can you give us a bit, I mean, give us, because you're such a, um, a prominent kind of commentator, I guess, these issues, can you give us a bit, what is sort of your, your take on sort of these sort of recent sort of, um, you know, examples of kind of far right influence kind of violence? Um, and then generally the kind of state of kind of far right politics kind of today. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, I mean, I, I, I guess in the Australian context, it's something you could see, um, happening like a transition that began maybe from 2017, um, uh, in terms of people moving off the street and moving into, I guess, you know, purely online states or, or, or off the street modes where, where I guess, you know, they're not engaging like I guess they were in the patriot movement context on in rallies. They're being radicalised online or or in small sort of almost paramilitary contexts like we saw in Australia with the Lab Society. And they're not they're not engaging um, in these sort of public expressions of their politics like even the patriot movement were. And, you know, and you... You know, there's no, the first, I'd say, in the example of someone like Brenton Tarrant or the recent shooting of people that followed him, you know, there's no opportunity to engage with these people because you don't know who they are until they suddenly go out, you know, up to the neck with this batshit insane series of <laughs> conspiracy theories and and they, they kill a bunch of people and that's sort of the latest manifestation of of, of far-right paranoia, and I'm, you know, I'm intending to talk about that tomorrow. My talk's very much about the media, but you, you know, I, 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 I almost think to myself that after years, years and years of this sort of divisive culture war that the alt-right has played, you, you wind up with people who just don't want to participate anymore. You know, there, there's no, there's no engagement for them with the outside world, none required. They only need to express their violence, and that's what I think's happening. Hmm. So, given that that's the case, and it's sort of this um, overarching uh, atmosphere of racism that's sort of emboldening these uh, people, even if they are kind of atomised and online, mm. then flowing from that, is it is it the case that we've got to combat things like the demonisation of refugees to try and I don't know deprive these people of oxygen? How do you tackle that? Yeah, um, well, I, I mean, some of the things, I, you know, what I, I've got, there's a special guest coming on with me as well who's, who's extremely equipped to talk about this. And if it comes to what warriors anti-fascists should be doing, when, you know, particularly as it relates to the public sphere and, and with the media, well, we need to be cultivating better contacts with the media. We need to be working as a better, uh, I guess, information share network so that we can communicate with the public better and, you know, and, and, and that's not just, that's not just in the protest sphere, you know, or in the, the public sphere either. I think we, we need to get better at the info that we communicate online. Hmm. Um, and it needs to be a, 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 a presence that's more palatable to more people. That's, that's really what I believe. You know? 
I mean, I, a lot of the things I've done are, are very smart-ass gestures of, of participatory direct action stuff, you know, like, like yelling at racist dogs. Um, but it was always, you know, efforts like that are meant to be fun ways of engaging with people and, and, and not really allowing our alt-right, our friends in the alt-right, who, let's face it, have a lot more institutional power and money than us, not allowing them to box anti-fascists into anything too predictable in the way that we respond to them, you know. I mean, we, we, we are no passive agents in this, in this sort of alt-right mission to, to tell a bunch of, like, you know, fantasy narratives about the world. We're, we're also demonised as anti-fascists, you know, turned into terrorists. I mean, you know, there's, 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 looks, there's moves towards literally doing that in America as well, like categorising Antifa as a terrorist organisation. And so we need to be something that's, that's, um, that's more difficult, I guess, that, that refreshes itself and is harder for the alt-right to pin down in that sense, you know. So we need to be changing and we need to be updating our message. That's what I believe. Mm. I mean, one of the one of the things um, is, um, in, in currently with... Um in terms of how the media kind of portrays the far right, I mean, just looking at these kind of recent shootings, um, yeah. there's always these scapegoats kind of put forward to sort of defer from the fact that these shooters were actually expired by far right politics. Um, for example, one of the one of the one of the first things that sort of came up was, oh well, this is actually the result of video games um, or video <laughs> game kind of violence, despite the fact that the the it would it does not make any sense because um, there was actually a, a statistic that showed, I mean. Japan, for example, which is like one of the countries where that has the highest um, sales of video games, also has the lowest um, violence in um, rates of gun violence. Um, And then there's also there's also always this um, attempt um, to sort of humanize kind of the fascist or the far righter in a way that is not afforded to say if if this if it was like say an Islamist sort of terrorist started shooting up um, people in the United States then then there would be some push to implement sort of you know repressive fight of policy that impacts on on Muslims but there's no talk um, in the light of these sort of shootings of actually making any changes to gun laws etc yeah, totally. I agree. Uh, the, the video games thing, the mental illness thing, there's so many shades and nuances as to why it can't be that simple, you know. We should be fine if we were a nuanced society, but as you quite rightly point out, we don't afford those same opportunities to the groups that, that it's profitable to, to demonise, you know. Um, I, I must say, I guess, you know, call me an optimist, but I do think that this... This spate of like absolute out and out violence is going to come at the cost of political capital for the, the nationalists who are actually, you know, like the, 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 the more public nationalist movements that surround it. You know, it's because it's going to become harder and harder for them to, 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 um, pin their, to pin their um, messaging on the same kinds of things that have been written in manifestos by these shooters time and again. Um, and, I, I, you know, this is not something these people have planned for, but I am noticing that these absolute expressions of violence, that, you know, they're going to have to cause, I guess, nationalist movements to move in a different direction. You know? So, I, I, I mean, you know, heaven forbid, that's, I, I, can't, I can't see any positives in this absolute 
like horrific display of violence is occurring at the moment. You know? Like it's absolutely terrible. But um, yeah, it's it's really put. I think it's really put nationalism into a tailspin. You know, uh, they 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 know, they know, they they would rather point out video games. What a fucking ridiculous excusing away of what's actually happening here. You know, they don't know what to say because they've set this message out there into the world for several years now, mm. and now it's causing people to shoot people again and again and again. You know. Yeah, and, and another question I have, and this is a bit, might, you might have different a different position on this from me, um, or different positions from some of the anti-fascist movement. Um, but what is sort of your thoughts on? I mean, some there has been some kind of response, um, um, in terms of the kind of the radical, if uh, with a lot of this radicalization happening in sort of online communities like 4chan, um, for example, yeah. there has been some companies have actually, you know pulled the plug on the hosting of some of these sites. Um, But that has also had, um, I mean, some argument against from the anti-fascist side have, have made the argument that this, um, this in a sense might have the effect of actually empowering um, the far right even more because they'll, they'll see themselves as being persecuted and then they'll set up their own kind of sites, which can also just be as awful as ones that they were previously um, had a platform on before. Um, and sort of what is your kind of comments on some of the, the dynamics of that? Yeah, no, it's an interesting question. And you're absolutely right. Like, lots of people have different takes and I've had lots of arguments uh, with, with, with other anti-fascists about it. Um, the left, of course, is not no monolith, even though we're told that it is all the time. Um, look, I, I, um, I heard, I think it was Roxanne Gay on, oh, was it Q and A, a little while ago. I saw her on TV in Australia, and she was talking about how um, social media environments and online environments. The more that we move into those spaces as being our town square environment the more we're going to have to start to think of of those curated town square environments as being that something that someone's going to have to uh, curate, take care of, clean up. In the same way that if I go to Flinders Street Station and I stand there waving about a swastika placard, which is not something I'm intending on doing anytime soon, don't worry, but <laughs> if I were to go and do that, I stood outside there doing that, someone will remove me mm. from that space because we accept that in these... We accept that that's a town square environment, that people have responsibilities to each other, the public environment. Um, online environments, I think we're going to start seeing them in the same way. And if I can easily access an environment that is explicitly encouraging me to kill 50 people and giving me the toxic, ridiculous, unhinged worldview, feeding it to me daily... That, that he's, you know, proving pretty successful at mate leading people to do just that. Someone's going to have to curate that environment. And I, and I think that's just a question of the modern world. But that's not me being censorial in nature. You know, I'm not, I'm not a, you know, I'm not, I'm not interested in begging for institutions or the state necessarily to regulate these things. But you have to ask yourself, I mean, who else can? What needs to happen here? I think by the time you have a space that has been so explicitly murderous in its in its worldview, um, then you're going to have to do you have to do something to, to to break that up. 
I mean, we wouldn't have had any issue doing this if it were a, a, an Al-Qaeda or an ISIS open space. We know that. In fact, we know that lots of, you know, like state organisations did go to great lengths to break up those spaces, those recruitment spaces online. My issue is that, that um, I understand it would disconnect people and make them harder to track. I have no idea, no doubt that we continue to track them. You know, anti-fascist researchers are, are worth their weight in gold, frankly, and I know quite a few who are amazing. But, you know, so we continue mm. to know what they were saying. We would have that info feed. But the benefit to it is that less new people would be participating in those spaces. Mm. And they got this constant feed of new people because what are the, <laughs> turn on the TV in America, Fox News is saying the same things as these manifestos do. So it's no, it's no, it's no accident that they wind up on 4chan, and it's not a great leap from the the, the paranoia and the hate of of Fox News in America or what have you or Sky here for them to you know then start believing that they should be going out to shoot fifty people. Hmm. Um, so hmm. I, that, that's why I think that those spaces need to be limited. I think the benefit of a new feed of people um, not being able to get in there would outweigh the difficulties that people would face in being able to see what they're saying. Yeah, Tom, I was just saying a minute ago when I, when I called you, I, I thought you made a really good point as part of your um, talk at the uh, comedy festival where you're making the point that Indigenous people have survived a sort of an equivalent to the climate catastrophe when their uh, countries have been sort of invaded and occupied and they've been dispossessed. They've survived that, and so there's important lessons there. Um, and I'm wondering if you can sort of expand on that idea a bit. And how, how is uh, combating fascism, how does that link in with um, Aboriginal uh, liberation and, and solidarity? Yeah, um, well, the, the point I was making on that one is that there's a lot of... Um uh, very uh, white <laughs> um, or colonizer-based fear narratives, and and apocalypse ones are just some of those. It's the fear that oh, for the first time ever, someone's going to come along and they're going to to uh, ruin the world as we know it. And you know, my point on that night was to say that Indigenous people have, in all senses of the world, faced their own apocalypse in many places over. Well, because people came in and they, they took away a sense of the world as they knew it, literally took them away, you know what I mean? Replacement um, attempts at genocide, in my view. And, you know, and all over the world there are still Indigenous people who have um, not only survived that experience but thrived through it. Um, and, and my point there was to say that we've got to be talking with other efforts. Uh, uh, you know, climate movements are only as good as the, the bonds that they can create between different different movements. Um, uh, uh, you know, you can't reinvent the wheel in that sense. I mean, if there are Indigenous movements um, that have been fighting to protect their local environment or local grassroots ones here, like the Chakwarang effort out there. Mm. I mean, if you can't reach out to those different efforts and build bonds with them, then you're, you're not going to build up that solidarity to create a big, broad movement. Mm. Um, same thing applies to fascism, you know, uh, or, to, or to fighting and nationalist messaging. Um, we've got to work with other people. We've got to be able to accept. I mean, you know, we talk about diversity of tactics all the time, but I... Uh, you know, in the left, but when I say that, I, I don't just mean acknowledging that different people do different things. 
I, I think we need to actually support other people's different things, <laughs> you know, sharing what we have in common. For example, like I might be a prominent foghorn, smart-ass lefty figure, but I'm only, as an actual anti-fascist activist, I'm only as good as I am part of the network that I'm part of. Mm. But, you know, I don't, I, I don't just exist to do that, you know. My position means that lots of people message me things through my page. I don't just hold on to them and go, look at how amazing I am, everyone tells me things. <laughs> I pass those things along to other people in my big, broad network. Um, and I think, you know, my foghorn status might belie the fact that really, you know, I'm not, I don't, you know, I don't really prize that all that much. I'm part of a network. We need to be a better, bigger network um, to fight fascism, to fight climate change, and so on and so forth. Um, that's just some of the stuff. I'll be banging on about that tomorrow too. So, yeah, if anyone wants to come along, that would be amazing. Hell yeah. Um, we're going to wrap it up pretty shortly. Do you have any closing sort of thoughts or ideas? Uh, what's your favourite anti-fascist moment in history or, or in recent or further past history? Like, I, I, you know, I, I'm someone that, that likes creative responses to fascism, and, and there's so many to name. But, you know, I like comedic creative responses because I think that laughter is something that... Uh, laughter and taking the mic is something that, that, that builds bonds between people, and I think a movement's only... Uh, frankly, I think a movement's only as good as its capacity to have a sense of humour. I... It depends on the context and what have you, but if you're dealing with oppressive people, you need to be able to undermine those people. And, again, different people work in different ways, but I, I, I need to laugh. Like, I, I can't mm. I can't be any part of I can't really be part of any movement that doesn't make me laugh. If it's too sour, um, then it's just not my jam, you know? And I, I remember reading about, um, under Milosevic's regime, uh, there was a student newspaper... That was really, you know, like in a, in a pretty oppressive regime, um, started doing all these antagonistic like acts that would, that really began, um, what, what wound up being a, a revolution. One thing I did was that it, it was said that no one was allowed to, um, no one was allowed to insult or attack any, uh, uh, posters <laughs> featuring, you know, the head of state. Visage or what have you. There was these series of ridiculous laws came in. They went out into a town square and they put a, a an oil drum there, and they put a poster of Milosevic's face there, and then beneath that they put they put a little sign saying, um, "For a dollar, put a dollar in the oil drum, and then you can kick the drum." <laughs> And then, no then they just left, you know, they were in a building nearby, and then people started doing it, and then they started queuing up to do it, <laughs> hundreds of them. And then the state, started, you know, like the police came along, and they ended up basically arresting the drum. <laughs> and they, you know, they put it into their van and went off with them. And it was this kind of ridiculousness that actually, you know, but it was subverting yeah. the authoritarian rule. Yeah, was... That's the kind of thing that actually led to people storming Parliament House. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, so, right. yeah, so We've... there's some of my favourite We're going to wrap it up. Um, Beyond Zero Emissions coming in next. Thank you very much for talking with us, Tom. And we'll Thanks, see you Evan. tomorrow, 11am at Trade Tour. Please come along. Thanks a lot. Cheers. All right, that is us for another week. Uh, you have been listening to Green Left Radio. Uh, have a good weekend. This brings us to the end of the show. 
You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.